Welcome. You are listening to a sermon preached at Church at the Armory. If you like what you hear, share it. God bless you. So would you please welcome one of this this church's spiritual sons and just a great, great man of God, Talon Van Dyke, to preach the word to us today. Actually, I want to do one thing real quick. I need a couple. I need a couple. Uh, uh, I need a couple of strong dudes. Come here, Clint. Come here, Jordan. Um, move that board and hold this. Um, and then in the back corner down there, there's an old, old, old pulpit. I want y'all bring it up here. Sorry, bring it up here. I had this whenever Talon was talking about his dream, and he stood in the middle of this field in this old uh, pulpit. We brought from us from we brought from the Second Baptist Cross Life Building this old. How old is that pulpit, Miss Carolyn? What'd she say? Huh? More than a hundred years old. And so, and I've like this thing is so this will be like the first time it's been used in probably 20, 30, 40 years. And he brought it over here. And um, so I just think it's kind of like a, a cool symbol that he's going to stand behind this hundred-year-old pulpit in the middle of the field and declare life this morning. Amen? Amen. So there you go. Isn't that neat? All right. Thank you. Awesome. My OCD is going to drive me crazy. It's not even. That thing is heavy, God. Yeah. Mm. Hey, it's fine. It's fine. Mm. <laughs> oh, no, what are we going to do? The king likes Daniel more than me and you. Oh no, what we gonna do? We gotta get him out of here. <laughs> we could throw him in the dungeon. We could let him rot in jail. <laughs> Use him as a footstool. <laughs> Where? <To the> ocean. <laughs> I love Veggie Tales. Well, I'm very, very thankful. Y'all just have to be, bear with me. This is who I am. I sing VeggieTales a lot. When Hannah and I are going down the road, we sing VeggieTales silly songs with Larry. Yeah. Say boo. <laughs> uh, yes, it is. It's so good. Uh, so I, as per protocol, I want to open us with a joke. It's not a dad joke. Well, it could be. Now, as a bagpiper, I know y'all didn't know I played bagpipes, but I do. I play many gigs. Recently, I was asked by a funeral director to play at a graveside service for a homeless man. He had no family or friends, so the service was to be at a pauper cemetery in the Louisiana backcountry. As I was not familiar with the backwoods, I got lost, and being a typical man, I didn't stop to ask for directions. I finally arrived an hour late and saw the funeral guy had evidently gone, and the hearse was nowhere in sight. 
There were only the diggers and crew left, and they were eating lunch. I felt bad and apologized to the men for being so late. I went to the side of the grave and looked down, and the vault lid was already sealed. I didn't know what else to do, so I started to play. The workers put down their lunches and began to gather around. I played out my heart and my soul for this man with no family and friends. I played like I've never played before. As I played Amazing Grace, the workers began to weep. They wept, I wept, we all wept together. When I finished, I packed up my bagpipes and started for my car. Though my head was hung low, my heart was full. As I opened the door to my car, I heard one of the workers say, Dear sweet mother of Jesus, I ain't never seen anything like that before, and I've been putting in septic tanks for over 20 years. <laughs> I've, been, I've been doing a lot of... I, I have an obsessive personality, so if I find a topic that interests me, I usually just hyperfixate. And one of the things I've been very interested in lately is farming, uh, especially farming and farming equipment. Um, usually if uh, we're driving along, I'm it's like, hey, that's a Macy Ferguson, blah, blah, blah. You know, whatever. I, I don't know why. I've never farmed in my life. I've had a vegetable garden. I've never driven a big old tractor. I've never driven a combine. I have... I guess I have some family up in the northeast and uh, north central United States who farm, but I've never been on a farm to work it, but I've, I'm really interested in it. There's this YouTuber I watch who has a very large, very large family operation up in Canada. Now, just to be clear, I don't like Canada. The, about the only things I like about Canada are maple syrup and hockey. And I suppose Mike Mitchell. Now, he, he does vlogs about his farming projects, and he shows all the steps necessary to have a successful harvest. It's literally from the beginning to the end of a season. I don't just mean seeding and then running a combine, but all the stuff that unless you work on a farm, you wouldn't know about. There's a, the truth is there's an awful... Awful, awful lot of work that goes into running a farm. Machines can break. Everything, even with every, all the effort that you put into something, you are not guaranteed to succeed. I watched one of his videos where during the middle of a canola harvest, now if you don't know, canola is what's referred to as an oil seed like sunflowers. But this video, he just bought brand spanking new, top-of-the-line Fent Combine. Had just started, maybe he was in, I don't know, his first 10 acres of this canola field. And if you've ever seen a combine running, they're kicking out, up a big cloud of dust. That dust is very flammable because it's fine, dry particles, any little sort of little spark can make things combust. Well, somehow... He must have had his header a little too low because he hit a rock or something. Something sparked, and that brand-new $8 million combine caught fire and burnt to the ground. Hadn't put, I don't know, hadn't put 30 hours on the machine. 
And if that wasn't bad enough, know how I mentioned earlier he was in the middle of a canola field? Canola is an oil seed, oil and fire. That entire field burnt to the ground. They couldn't control it. All they could do was try to make a fire break and because they, they couldn't put it out with water. The whole field went up in smoke. I watched another video just before harvest time. I think it was in two, uh, 22 of a field of a different crop that was ruined by hail. Weather will come and destroy your crop. And then you're left trying to salvage what you can in order to make it into next year. Hopefully you don't have too many run-ins with bad luck, things outside your control. Otherwise, the bank is going to come and they're going to start seizing your assets because you're missing payments. And the only reason that you have debt in the first place was to try to make it into the next year where things might be better. All that work, all that toil, all those late nights and early mornings can be ruined in a fraction of time that it took to actually do the work. Generally, to get a, ready, a field ready for seed, you may or may not have to plow it. You have to do some sort of work with the soil, and then you got to do soil testing. Old school farmers would actually taste the soil to see what it needed. But after you work the ground, you need to put, maybe you need, maybe you need to adjust the pH. Maybe you have to add, uh, I, I don't know, nitrogen or sulfur or whatever to get the, get the soil ready for the seed. Before you even put seed in the ground, you have to do all this work. And then you put the seed in, but then you have to irrigate, you have to deal with weeds, you have to deal with pests, and carefully watch as your seeds mature and grow. The majority of the time, that field that's growing or being developed doesn't have fruit to sustain you. You are investing with no immediate return for most of the season. I want to talk about endurance today. So we're going to, I need to pray right quick before we get further into this. Father, I, I ask that you give me the words of Jesus, the heart of the Father, and the inside of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would be with me as I try to relay what you have given me to talk about. Father, I ask that you would give us ears to hear what you, what you want to say today. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. We're going to first look at Hebrews 10, 36. For you have need of endurance. Everybody say endurance. endurance. What is endurance? And why do you need it? If we can go to James 1. James says, Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is saying that trials test faith, which produces in us endurance. And the, writers of he the writer of Hebrews, whoever that is, says that we need endurance. Why? What is endurance? Endurance as is defined as the ability to sustain a prolonged stressful event of activity or suffering. 
So why do you think he, the writer of Hebrews saying that you need endurance, and why is James saying that endurance will have a perfect result through the trial, trial by tribulation or however you want to say it? You ask any sort of worker or athlete or even someone who sits at a desk for 12 hours a day, whatever the job is, Whatever you're doing, endurance, you can't do it for long if you don't have endurance. Sure, there's things to consider like how fast you're moving or how much you're trying to do at one time. You might be able to lift a weight that's 5 pounds over your head 200 times, but only a weight that's 200 pounds over your head once. But endurance is necessary to do the work. There's a lot to unpack in these three verses because the reality of life is that we will all face difficulties and hardships. There is no way around it. My guess is that all of you have been through a few storms already. And my guess for the future is you're going to face a few more storms. At first glance, Counting it all joy might seem impossible and really kind of insensitive. (laughs) After all, why should we think that the storms we face are something to rejoice in? But the truth of this passage is very profound. And I think that it's a passage that every follower, follower of Jesus should reflect on and be encouraged by. Now, I've broken this down into five sections, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try my best to teach and not preach, but we'll see. <laughs> After we look at each of these sections, we will look at how they practically apply to our lives. First, we're going to look at counted old joy. Some translations say consider it pure joy. We will see in the next section, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, that this joy is not based on circumstance, being good. Rather, we should be counting it all joy when we face trials. We will look more at that in a minute, but I want want to look at this word joy and what it means. Now, the, the word for joy in the original Greek, footnote, Greek and redneck are not complementary dialects. So if I mispronounce it, you can tell me I'm wrong in the parking lot. Don't do it in here. I embarrass easily. Uh, The the word for joy in the original Greek is kara. And it means to be cheerful, glad, or greatly joyful. Not surprising. What is surprising is the source of joy. We tend to find joy in our circumstances. Vacations, relationships, promotions, when life is going up and to the right. But the Bible talks about joy differently. Joy in our circumstance is fleeting. But there's a more secure joy that we can have even in the middle of a storm. That's the joy that James is talking about. One that can be experienced even in the difficult moments of life. Dr. Tom Constable says this. Quote, James did not advocate a masochistic attitude that unnaturally rejoices in painful experiences. Rather, he commanded them to view their trials as profitable, even though unpleasant. Another translation of all joy can be pure joy. 
The opposite would be some joy mixed in with a little bit of grief. The attitude James advocated can take all the bitterness out of even very uncomfortable trials. Regardless of the source of our difficulties, the world, our flesh, the devil, whatever, we can and should be glad as we go through them. James continues, whenever you face trials of many kinds, count it all joy whenever you face trials. Now, what trials is James talking about? In short, every trial that you face, whether financial, health, persecution, whatever, all the trials we face, we should count them as joy. Now, the Greek word that's translated as trials is I don't know how to pronounce that. But Strong's Concordance describes it as the trial or proving of man's fidelity, integrity, virtue, constancy, also enticement to sin and temptation, whether arising from desires or outward circumstances. I've heard people try to frame this like James is writing to a persecuted church, which he was, and that's the only context for this verse. But that's not true, not according to the Greek that he used a trial or proving of man's virtue. Today, we tend to view trials and hardships as negative, something to be avoided at all costs. We even don't want to be bored for very long because being bored is a bad thing. We constantly have to have something in front of us so we can get the next dopamine hit. And then when something starts acting normal, which is not much is going on, we think something's wrong with us because we're not as happy as we were. This attitude costs us. There's actually a benefit going through difficulties. And James is about to outline what counting it all joy produces in our life. The testing of your faith produces endurance. The word testing, translated from the Greek, dokimion, it implies demonstrating true quality of something under pressure. Like a refiner's fire would purify gold ore, trials of our life produce endurance. Without this refining process, gold will never shine. Have you ever seen gold ore, raw gold? I'm not talking about what they pan out of the river and what has been polished by time and separated from the dirt, but actual gold ore where there's only trace amounts of it, not very visible. You might be able to see a little glint if the, if the sun hits it just right, but most of the time it just looks like a pan of dirt. That dirt that has potential inside of it, has to go through an uncomfortable and difficult process in order to become something shiny where you don't even have to hold it in the right light to get it to shine. It just shines. So that's what trials do in your life. You don't where the light doesn't hit you just right and you demonstrate a little bit of godliness. Like when you're at church it's, like it's easy to get shiny here, but out in your job when your boss is a jerk or a co-worker who won't shut up, the very sound of their voice 
once you want to put a pencil in their eye, right? Is it just me? No. And people will say, hey, I'm going to call you later, like this stupid hand gesture. I mean, whatever. Trials produce in us endurance, steadfastness, and perseverance. Without these things, we will not grow into the person that God has in mind when he created us. This is not just true of our faith, but life in general. If you go to the gym, you have to get busy hurting. And you might not be able to do as much as you want to do. You might have to look over at someone who has been through the process, who is able to lift heavy weights, but you can only do a fraction of what they can lift. And you get discouraged because, what am I doing wrong? It takes time. The majority of people who accomplish great things did not do so because they had it easy, but rather because they pushed through adversity. Let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete. We all want shortcuts, the easy road. We want to skip the difficult parts. But in order to grow... In order to experience the life that God has for us, we must go through the trials. Most of the time, if you take a seed and you just put it down in loose soil, there's a high chance that it's not going to develop properly. It needs that downward exerted pressure in order for its roots to go down because literally the process of its growing can push it up out of the soil and kill the plant. It's a very natural thing. Rather than run from trials, we should face them. The meaning of James, this passage of James, is teaching us that we should rejoice in trials... Count it as all joy, not because you enjoy the pain, but because what we, we know what the pain is going to produce. I'm convinced of this, that we have a lot of spiritually immature Christians because they run from trials in pursuit of something easier. The difficulties we face are instruments of God that he uses to mold and shape us. Pain is God's megaphone. For Christians, we follow a God that did not spare himself from uncomfortable situations. He was ridiculed, chased out of town, beaten, hung on a cross for the joy set before him. And he promised that we would go through the same. But we don't go alone, lacking in nothing. James ends this verse with a phrase, lacking in nothing. In other words, God just doesn't throw you to the lions and say, figure it out. 
We have everything we need. While Jesus promised us that we'd have difficulties, he also promised he'd be with us. Whatever you're going through, you're not walking alone. God is right beside you, and he will provide you with everything that you need to make it through. Also, God never intended us to go through life alone, but rather we are to walk in community with each other. We need each other. That's the way we are designed. If you aren't living in a community with fellow followers of Jesus, it's time to find that and invest in those relationships. I would love for you to do it here, but bottom line, you need community. I want to share a, a, a kind of a sensitive moment for me, uh, something that I experienced in Little Rock. I wouldn't wish what we went through on my enemies. I think about it, and I think about Cohen, and I got to tell you, he can't talk yet, but when he reaches up and touches my face, it's all worth it, man. Even when he sticks his finger up my nose hole. <laughs> and then straight to my mouth. Thank you, buddy. But there was a moment where I, I would like to say that what we, when we experienced what we did, Hannah and I and our family and all of, all of y'all experienced with us, um, I would like to say that we made it through and we were just full of faith the entire time. But I can't say that because that's not what happened. I found myself in a very dark line of thinking, questioning things, doubting things, angry why me why him i was even is it some was it something i did that caused this is this a result of my disobedient lifestyle that i had that caused this to happen So I was in this, I was in this, so I mentioned earlier that you need a community of, of fellow believers who are there to encourage you. I can count on my hand the number of times I've received what I would consider an absolute accurate word of knowledge. I, one of y'all came up to me on a Sunday and I'm still in this thinking like like wrestling with a thought this is what you did no it isn't that's that's not true God is full of mercy he wouldn't put my sin on my son no it's because you did this so I'm battling this in my head and only talked with my wife and maybe a less than a handful of other people about what I was thinking 
and I was sitting there during worship, and one of one of our body came up to me and said, uh, shared with me a passage out of Luke where the disciples had seen the blind man, and Lord, is is this because is he the, like this because of his sin or the sins of his fathers? And Jesus replied, no, it's so that the glory of God can be revealed. And then they looked at me in my eyes and said, this is not punishment. Trials that you encounter in your life are not punishment. But in Little Rock, I was going through this, like I said, dark time, dark thinking. And I was listening to some music that really, I don't know what's the word, vibe, vibed with my attitude. I don't speak Gen Z, young whippersnappers. Um, but it really agreed with the attitude that I was having at the time, which was very angry, very depressed, very doubtful, very hateful. And I won't share the lyrics of the song I was listening to. But God can sometimes talk to you in ways that you don't expect. So after I got finished with that song, YouTube, the shuffle button, the autoplay was activated. I don't usually do that. But the next song that came on by the very same band. Okay? said this, help me if you can, because this is just not the way I'm wired. Could you please help me understand why you're giving in to all these reckless, dark desires? You're lying to yourself again, imbecile. What will it take to get it through to you, precious? Why do you want to throw it away like this? I don't want to see you disconnect and self-destruct. <laughs> you are not lacking anything to get through whatever is in front of you. God is with you and he will be your source of strength. Now that we've looked at the meaning of James this passage in James, I want to look at how we can practically apply it to our lives. Number one, three points. Number one, shift your focus. You are constantly being sold something and being told that you need something. And if you're not careful, you will buy into what these voices are telling you what you need. The world tells us we need money, fame, Sex, cars, vacations, health, perfect families, and all sorts of other things to be happy. Stuff, Mart. <laughs> Larry, do you need all this stuff to be happy? I don't know. How much stuff is there? <laughs> Listen, those things, all those things, they're not bad. They're not bad to have. When they're not and they're not bad as long as they're used as God intends you to use them. 
But they aren't ultimate things, and they're not things to build your life upon. They won't make us happy, and they're not going to fulfill your desires. When you center your life around the things that the culture tells you that you need, you will struggle to face the trials that come your way. Counting it all joy will become harder and harder because you are focusing on the wrong things. As followers of Jesus, we need to shift our focus. Rather than striving for and focusing on the things that the world does, we need to focus on Jesus. We need to strive for what he's leading us to do. After all, those things are never going to live up to what they promised you anyways. So when you find yourself pursuing those things, stop and pray and refocus on God. Number two, keep God in his place. One of the biggest temptations we face is to worship the gift and not the giver. We worship and desire the things that God has given us rather than God himself. When we do that, we remove God from his place and instead strive for something or someone else. We worship the gift rather than the giver. People will say, I've accepted Jesus into my heart, so when I die, I go to heaven. No, I'm sorry, but if that's your thought process, you need to grow up in the name of Jesus and love. That's not the truth. The truth is, think of it like this. If you were not guaranteed a paradise, would you still serve God? If you weren't going expecting to be met at the pearly gates by St. Peter to be welcomed in with open arms, here's your mansion, here's the pond you can go fish in, here's some ambrosia you can eat. If that wasn't waiting on you, would you still serve him? If the answer is no, something's wrong with your heart. What the meaning of James, what he's saying is that God's desire is that we would be mature and complete. But the only way to get there is through trial and hardship. Again, gifts are not a bad thing. I'm not saying that going to heaven is a bad thing. When I die, deuces, I'm out of here. All right? I'm going to go see Jesus. And the first thing I'm doing is I'm kissing every scar on his body. You know why he's going to let me do that? Because I'm his favorite. You hear me? (laughs) Good things are not ultimate things, but they prove the consistency and the pleasure that God takes in you, and they're there to point you back to God. We should enjoy all things that God gives us, but keep God in his place and count it all joy when God is producing something of value in us. Number three, prioritize calling over comfort. If you are a follower of Jesus, he has a calling on your life. You were created on purpose for a purpose. Now, there's a lie that goes around that if we follow God, we will have an easy life. As we've seen, the calling on your life is not easy, but it is meaningful. The problem is many followers settle for what's comfortable rather than step into what's meaningful. I don't want to make it to heaven 
and see Jesus, and after I get done kissing every scar on his body and thanking him for everything he's done, I don't want to ask him, how did I do? And I don't want his reply to be, you could have done more. If you prayed a little more, if you suffered a little more, this is where you would have been, and here's all the things that I had planned for you to do, but you were unwilling to go through the process to get there. We settle for what's comfortable. This keeps us from counting it all joy because we don't want those hard times. We want peace because there's no storm. But the Bible teaches us that peace is found not in the absence of storms, but in the presence of our Savior. What the disciples did wrong on the Sea of Galilee during the storm. Jesus was asleep in the boat. They should have curled up and took a nap next to him. What do I have to worry about? The maker's right there. But no, it's, oh, what are we going to do? The maker of the water and the wind is literally in the boat with you. He, plant, he came up with the idea of the tree that built the boat that you're in. And now, it's time for you to step out and into the life that God has for you. It's not going to always going to be easy, but it's going to be meaningful. It's a life worth living. Amen. Lastly, and here's where I kind of want to hang on my hat as we close, get ready to close. We're going to look at Proverbs 24, 16. For a righteous person falls seven times and rises again. It does not say, for a righteous person never trips up in his life, and a righteous person always keeps his back straight and his head held high. He never falls down into the slop, and he never gets stuck in the pig pen. It does not say that. It says that the righteous man gets up. Falls. Falls how? We've heard it plenty about where a righteous man sins and then keeps on going like I just talked about. But in the context of endurance, I want to frame it this way. Falling because of a trial. Pain is a constant across culture, upbringing, socioeconomic class. Pain exists in your life. This is why I hate when people, I hate it when people are manipulated when, when someone comes up or a preacher comes up to them and said, someone in your life has hurt you. Well, no kidding. Yeah. You call that a word of knowledge, you charlatan, you snake oil salesman? Get out of here. Yeah. No. And they want to create an emotional moment as they stare deeply into your eyes and, into your, and reach into your wallet. I'm a little bit jaded. No matter your background, where you come from, we have all experienced pain. An unrighteous man will experience pain and say, everything is against me. I don't deserve this, and life isn't fair. It's my parents' fault. It's my friend's fault. It's your fault. It's... I have nothing to do with what the pain I'm experiencing. It's all everybody else's fault. From the very beginning, we sowed fig leaves. Adam, what happened? 
The woman, woman, what happened? Eve, what happened? The snake. The denial of accountability. No, it's someone else's fault and it never comes back around to you. A righteous man will experience pain and see it as an opportunity for growth. There's, a, there's an Olympic athlete that I believe really paints this picture of what I'm trying to say. His name is Derek Redman. He first was going to compete in the 90, uh, 1988 Olympics. But then Redmond was forced to withdraw from the opening heat of the 500-meter dash only two minutes before the race was scheduled to begin. And y'all might remember this. Some of y'all might remember this. 92, Barcelona Olympics. Derek had, on, had undergone five operations to get him ready for the race including one on his Achilles, less than four months before the games began. Derek got ready to run with the whole world watching him. He had spent the majority of his life training for these next few moments. That's what's so crazy about the Olympics. You see these young people, it's not like they just woke up and... No, they're the top of their class. They had to fight and dig to get where they're at, and most of them are young. They've done that. This is all they've done. This is who they are. Derek was a runner. Running was who he is. He had the whole world watching him since the Olympics is a global event. His father was in the stands there to cheer him on. He got down, got ready to run. Then the gun goes off and he started running. Derek was finally running in the Olympics. What he trained for his entire life, he's now doing. The thing he felt like God put him on the earth to do, he's doing and he's running in the Olympics. Who would have thought that this man would grow up into an Olympic runner? I think about his dad watching him train for this moment. I wonder if his dad would ever think back to helping him take his first steps, watching him train, helping his son walk along. I wonder if Derek's father thought about that. Probably. Maybe. People... And now it's not just his dad cheering him on. First it started with his dad. You can do it, buddy. Let's go. You can do it. I'm so proud of you. To the whole world, people from every country who are watching, cheering him, either from the stands or through the, or through the TV or the radio. Who would have thought that he would have made it to this moment? Now, he ran through the first lap, and he did really good. He came around ahead of all of them, set the, recorded the fastest time for the first round. His second round, the semifinal. He was doing really good until about 150 meters in. 
tore his hamstring. And fell to the ground. The whole crowd gasped. He hit the ground. He's crying. Number one, because of the pain. Number two, what am I going to do now? And they started coming with a stretcher to get him. But you know what this man does? He jumps up and he starts hopping. He starts hopping. He can't run. The race is over. Everyone else had already crossed the finish line. Why is he running? And, they, and the, the medical staff, are they keep trying to stop him. Like, slow down, slow down. His dad, his dad jumps down, runs onto the track with him. Jester, can you come here for a second? Gets underneath him and is helping, helping his son to the finish line. So, thank you, Jess. And the medical staff, even then, even with his father present, were kept trying to stop Derek. And his dad would shoo him off, say, leave him alone. Get away from him. It's not about winning. It's about finishing. I don't care how long it takes, but we're going to finish. I taught my boy to finish. I don't care if it takes all night, but we're getting across that finish line. Listen to me. If Lacey, are you here or someone can get on the keys? <laughs> I came to tell you. If you fall, don't stay down. Don't stay down. You get back up. You get back up. Get back up on your feet, man and woman of God. You were put here for a purpose. It's not about winning. It's about finishing. And I want you to finish. And the Father wants you to finish. Don't you understand that when you fall... And you're down and you're crying because you think everything's over. It's all over. What am I going to do now? The father is trying to get underneath your arm. Come on, son. Come on, daughter. Let's go. We can make it. We can make it. I don't care if it's you who fell or have fallen and haven't gotten up, or even this, maybe you can be the heart of the Father for someone. You see someone fall. You get underneath them. 
We are so quick, so quick, and it drives me batty. When someone fails, gets in the pig slop again. Did you see? Did you see what they did? Heath, did you, did you see what Chester did? I saw him at the bar. He was drunk. Can you believe that? That's what we do. It shouldn't be this way in the house of believers. It shouldn't be this way in this family. You wouldn't do that to your son. Your son wouldn't fall down. He, what are you doing? How could you? You failed me, you piece of trash. You would never do that to your child. Even evil men know how to give good gifts. So here's what. If you fall down, or if you see someone fall down, help them. If you fall, get up. I don't care if it takes all night. I don't care if it takes years to get better. I don't care if we're here for the rest of our lives working on getting better. But we're going to get to the finish line. We're going to get there. I don't care if we have to crawl and groan and scream and fight and dig and cuss, but we're going to get to the finish line. Father, God, he looks at you when you fall. He does not say, I can't believe they did it again. Even Jesus had someone to help him carry his cross. <laughs> There's no person I'm more jealous of in history than that man got to help Jesus up that hill. And in that moment, the trial that Jesus was experiencing, the pain, the suffering, he had a finish line in mind for the joy set before him. joy set before him I think about the time that the woman was caught in adultery and Jesus stooped down and kneeled in the dirt there's many ideas of what happened you know like okay he, he wrote the sins of the people that were coming to accuse the woman that's a that's a very valid I, we've all heard that if you've been in church any amount of time you've probably heard that story sometimes I think we're created from dirt So Jesus kneels down in the dirt. All for this. This is what I'm here for. And you know what he does? The woman that had fallen 
in adultery, stands up and says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And her accusers left. They couldn't throw a rock. They couldn't do it. And then Jesus looks at her and says, where are your accusers? Though a righteous man stumbles, he rises again. This woman is a very clear picture of a righteous man. Yes, caught in adultery. But Jesus said to her, get up, go your way. Righteous man stumbled, righteous man got up. We've all experienced pain and hurt and we've all fallen the degree to which you fell doesn't matter in this heck you might have even been tripped by somebody the pain that I feel is because of what somebody else did to me don't stay there stay there it's not the end goal that Jesus had in mind for you maybe it was your own fault maybe you fell because you willingly chose let's forget all that the devil made me do it or it's because my father or my mother it's because I'm like this no we chose to stick our head in the slop trough So it starts there. Father, I know why I'm here. But I'm going, I'm, I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to get up and keep moving. There's a poem I want to close us with. Just bow your heads all across this room. And just listen to this. Think about the imagery of this. The tree that never had to fight for sun and sky and air and light, but stood out in the open plain and always got its share of rain, never became a forest king, but lived and died a scrubby thing. The man who never had to toil to gain and farm his patch of soil who never had to win his share of sun and sky and light and air, never became a manly man, but lived and died as he began. Good timber does not grow with ease. The stronger wind, the stronger trees. The further sky, the greater length. The more the storm, the more the strength. By sun and cold, By rain and snow, in trees and men, good timbers grow. Where the thickest lies in the forest growth, we find the patriarchs of both. And they hold counsel with the stars, whose broken branches show the scars of many winds and much of strife. This is the common law of life.